to read verses 1 through 4, Hebrews in chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. When we began Hebrews a few weeks ago, I said that this is a book with tremendous seriousness and urgency. Tremendous serious and urgency. It's not simply a theological treatise. In fact, none of the Bible is simply that. I'm fond of, uh, fond of quoting and he's fond of saying, that is J.I. Packer, that theology leads to doxology, that is, the purpose of theology is to lead us to worship, the better that we know God from his perspective, the more than we should worship, and thus all of the scripture is written that way, and all of theology is geared that we would worship God, so much so that he would capture our very lives, and that we would live by faith in him, and so as we come, this sense of urgency is that we do just that, and we see this urgency uh, in, the, in as verse 3 opens, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's, there's something we need to escape. I don't know about you, but when I read the word escape, my blood pressure just goes up a little bit. I begin to breathe a little more quickly because I wonder what is there from which I need to escape. Escape implies that I'm stuck. Escape implies that if I don't get out, then something horrible is going to happen to me. And so the author of Hebrews has this sense that, that we need to escape something. I wonder what is that thing which uh, we need to escape. There's something terrible. But then he adds that there's this great salvation, that is, there's this deliverance that comes that, that we need to grab a hold of so that we can, in fact, escape. And so the urgency here is twofold for this author of Hebrews. He believes two things. And number one, that there is something from which we need to escape. That is, if we don't, something horrible is going to happen. If he didn't think there was something horrible going to happen, then he wouldn't be so urgent about it. He wouldn't be so serious about escaping and then you must also believe that there is a way out that there is a deliverance there is a salvation there is a rescue from this horrible thing that's about to happen that could possibly happen in the context of our lives and if he didn't believe that then he would just simply be giving a message of hopelessness there was nothing that could enable us to escape then it would just be a message of hopelessness but he sees that there is something, and he's so serious about it, so urgent about it, he's saying this is the very thing that will enable us to escape that which is horrible. Now, I want to run you through the New Testament. Rather ambitious um, approach, but, but I want to take you through various passages in the New Testament. So get out your Bibles, God bless you, and uh, let's run... Let's run a few verses at you. If you're not accustomed to doing this, if you go to a church that doesn't normally do this, that's okay. Keep coming here. You'll get used to it because um, we do Bible around here. But um, so turn to Matthew chapter 23, please. Matthew chapter 23. 
in verse 33. What I want to do is just take you to a half a dozen passages which use this word escape so we can understand what the author of Hebrews has in mind in our escaping, all right? So hang on. Matthew 23, verse 23. This, I'm sorry, verse 33. 23, 33. This is a passage wherein Jesus is in the midst of talking to the scribes and Pharisees, so you know there's some hostility in the air. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 33, Matthew 23. He puts it like this. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? See, all of a sudden, when we realize that the escape is from, from hell, and when Jesus uses this expression, hell, we know precisely what he's talking about, because in Jerusalem, there was hell. There was a place outside the city called, in Greek, Gehenna, which we get our word, from which we get our word hell, and it was an image. It was an actual place, but it was an image of something deeper, spiritual. And really, this Gehenna, this hell outside of Jerusalem, was a garbage heap, and it was a, a place where worms infested and the fire never went out. And it just sort of smoldered all the time. And nobody really wanted to go near that. And to think that you could end up there would be a place from which you would want to escape. But Jesus says, how are you going to escape that? Turn to Romans, please, in chapter 2. In verse 2, here's a passage where uh, Paul is talking about human beings and, and our sin, really. Romans chapter 2, verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Uh, again, how are we going to escape this judgment of God? In, in Hebrews, I'll turn to this, in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to come to a verse, which I call the Billy Graham verse, because he always uses this. Uh, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. I mean, that's just fact. And so Paul is saying, catching people, and saying, well, how are you going to escape that judgment? It's, it's coming. So how will you escape that? Turn to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. Verse 1. Again, Paul writes, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so again, this whole idea of escape, the author of Hebrews says there's something from which you have to escape. This sudden destruction that's going to come like a thief in the night, this day of the Lord, it's coming, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be pleasant. Turn to 2 Timothy in chapter 2. In verse 24. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Paul, again writing to Timothy, says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, there's a sense in which that the difficulty here, one of the difficulties here, is that we're ensnared by Satan himself. 
And we need to escape from that. We need to get out of his clutches. And so the question is how? Turn to Hebrews, please, in chapter 12 this time. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. Again, we're just trying to get a sense of this word escape and how the Bible uses it and from what we are to escape. Hebrews 25 verse, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12 verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's saying, listen, there's a warning coming from heaven and, 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 and we need to escape him, this one who warns. God himself. In what sense do we need to escape from God? Uh, turn to Romans in chapter 5. I'm going to run you back through Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. I mean, actually, yes, verse 9. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, you see. So we've said, because this is the gospel, this is the bad news of the gospel, this is the first half of the gospel, that because of our sin, because of God's holiness and his justice, you see, then his wrath is not like the wrath of a human being, which is sort of an uncontrolled anger, but his wrath is his reasonable response to our sin. It doesn't control him in the sense that our anger often controls us to do irrational things. No, God is completely under control here. And his wrath is his righteous, just response to our sin. And so you see, we need to be saved from this wrath of God, saved from this Judgment of God, ensnared by the devil, saved from this. Turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 18. Just the first part, first half of this sentence. For the word of the cross, okay, give you a second. One of the great things about having a room with bad acoustics is you can hear the pages turn. That's really nice. It's one of the pluses. Why we don't spend the extra 40000 get the sound system perfect. Right? 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. See, there's a problem here. Human beings are actually perishing. They're going towards destruction. Turn to Galatians in chapter 1 and verse 4. Actually, we'll begin with verse 3. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. You see, part of the problem is that when we think about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, being ensnared by the devil, the question for us is, all right then, to whom do we turn? Well, we can't turn to our present age. We can't turn to the philosophers of this age. We can't turn to the best human minds that exist. Why? Because we're in a present evil age. They were in a present evil age. We are in a present evil age. Still continues on. And so the age won't help us. Our culture won't help us. We need, to de we need to be delivered from that. We need to escape it in order to escape the judgment of God, in order to escape the wrath of God. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, 
Again, Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only can we not look to the present evil age, but our problem is we can't even look to ourselves. We can't look within. And so when the philosophers of our day tell people, oh, just look within you, that's a problem. Because within us is this deadness that's a result of trespasses and sins. This deadness that disconnects us from God, the very one that we need to know from and be forgiven by. Turn to Colossians in chapter 1. Just a couple of New Testament letters to your right. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. This way of escape is a deliverance. His salvation is deliverance. And so verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. See, again, the problem, we can't look around because we're under the rule, under the dominion, under the kingdom of a dark world. The world itself can't help us escape. Uh, turn to Hebrews in chapter 2, last one. Hebrews in chapter 2. In verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, this is talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, we're stuck. We're stuck in a life that leads to judgment. We're stuck in a life that leads to the wrath of God. We're ensnared by this evil behind all of this, we can't turn to the present age in which we live for its help and to enable us to escape this because it's evil itself. It's turned away from God, so it will be of no help. We can't look within because sin exists there, and thus we live ensnared in this fear of death because we do know implicitly, deep down inside, somewhere in the recesses of our hearts, the recesses of our souls, we realize that we're going to die in face and how are we going to escape? That's, that's really the question. That's really the question uh, of the ages. And this need for escape is, is greater than any other need for escape that we could possibly have. I know some of you have been sitting there in the midst of a date going, I've got to get out of this. It's not, I mean, that's significant, but it's not quite like that. Or you may be in a job and go, I have to escape. I've got to get out of this job. This is horrible. Could be bad, but it's not like that. It could even be in a relationship that you're in, thinking, I've got to get out of this relationship. This is really bad. Well, that may be bad, but this is eternal. You may even be in the midst of a circumstance that's causing great depression, and you might be thinking, I've got to get out of this. You may be facing a terminal illness and say, oh, if I could only escape this, and I understand the great trauma of that, but this is worse. This is eternal. This is this sense of truth. We don't always talk about it. We don't talk about it all the time. But this is this great sense of the judgment to come and the wrath that's to come. Turn. I lied. Two more. G uh, Matthew in chapter 10. In verse 28. Again, just to lay this out more. We don't do this often these kinds of verses. 
But it's important to see the gospel in its right context. This is what's motivating the urgency of this author of Hebrews. This is why he says, how will we escape? Matthew 10, verse 28, on the lips of Jesus. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He's not speaking of Satan there. He's speaking of his father. He's saying, you know, all these people can do is kill you. All they can do is take your body. All they, they can do is, is, is destroy your present life. That's not good. But don't be so much afraid of that. Be so much afraid of the one who has control over your eternal destiny. That's the one you should fear in the sense of reverence, in the sense of even being afraid if you're outside of his will, because he's the one who really controls things. Turn finally to Zephaniah. This is a hard one. I'll give you a minute. Zephaniah in chapter 1. I conveniently have this little ribbon in Zephaniah. It makes me look much better than you, so I got it so quickly. Zephaniah, Old Testament, near the end. Zephaniah, Haggai. Haggai? Shouldn't be so. Yeah, Zechariah. So it's sort of in the Z's of the Old Testament. Haggai in the middle. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Listen. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. And so if it was near then, it's nearer now. But this sense of the great day of the Lord, this is a reality. It's not cover it up. This is a reality. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. That's not a good sound, is it? The mighty man cries aloud there. That is, when the great day of the Lord comes, the mightiest one among us will not be able to stand. So he cries. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. Again, he seems to be piling negative words upon negative words in order to make this impression that this is not a good day in the sense that we normally think of good days. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements, meaning that regardless of what fortresses exist, on the earth, they'll all come tumbling down. Nothing can stand against God in this day. Verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that uh, they shall walk in the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So no matter what we have in our possession, no matter what we've accumulated, no matter what is to our favor, won't be at that point in time. All of that may help you today, but it won't help you on this day. For the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. And that is the urgency, you see, of this author of Hebrews. He says that's what we need to escape from. That's the, that's the problem. That's the horrible end to which we could come unless we escape. That's the difficulty. And again, the difficulty is the very fact that God is holy and we're not. We need to consider that. We need to consider that God is just. And our sin is against him, ultimately. The difficulty remains, you see, as Jesus said in John in chapter 3, that we love darkness more than light. And God is light. And when the scripture says God is light, it means he's perfect, he's pure, he's holy, he's just. And if we love darkness, which is the opposite of that, you can see the collision that's about to take place on that day of judgment, on that day of wrath. Now you know why it's called a day of wrath, because of the collision between light and darkness. 
the author of Hebrews very honestly, very seriously says, we need to escape from that. When Jesus uses this expression, hell, he uses words like this to accompany it. He said, it's where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. You go, that sounds like a horrible place. Right. That's exactly right. One of the best descriptions I ever got of hell was one time my daughter, not this one, but the other one, uh, when my wife is visiting today, that's why she's not here, so she's not sick, so I don't have to answer that question. Uh, she's in Pittsburgh uh, visiting Sarah. But anyway, one time when Sarah was little, she was about eight-ish. She had a girl over for a slumber party the last time, as you'll see why this girl ever came to visit. But I was down in my basement office, and uh, Sarah came down by herself, and she says, she says, Dad, I've been telling, I won't say it was, I've been telling this little girl about hell. But I don't know what else to say. Could you help me? And I, I said, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to deal with this kid's mom. You know, I said, whatever you told her. She said, Dad, all I could think to tell her was, you just don't want to go there. I said, that works. That's very good. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea of the images. That's the whole idea. Oh, Jesus, the worm doesn't die. This infestation, imagine. I mean, just, and the fire is never quenched. Just this lack of satisfaction in the course of life. It's just always burning and never fulfilling. And he uses expressions like it's outer darkness. Outer darkness. Darkness would have been enough, but outer darkness, like outside the darkness. It's, it's way out there where light doesn't penetrate, where God's blessing is not. Thus, well, hell breaks loose in hell. Dissatisfaction and no joy. And, and I, I don't understand that in terms of what that would be like. But we have to let it penetrate our very being so that we can enter into what the author of Hebrews is telling us, that from which we need to escape. This is the urgency. He sees this. At this moment in time, he understands this. Jesus uses an expression of weeping and gnashing of teeth when he talks about his final destruction because it's an eternal destruction. Just juxtapose those words. It's an eternality of continuation of being destroyed. I don't understand what that means either precisely, but, but, but I know it's not good. I know it's worse than anything I could have ever imagined. And the author of Hebrews says, we need to escape from that because that's coming and that's justice. So he said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, that's the good news. That's the, that's the other part of this. He's not only urgent because he understands from which we need to escape, if that's all he knew, this would be simply a message of, of hopeless despair. But it isn't all he knows. There's something else he knows, and he's just as urgent about it. He's saying, look at the horrible end, but you don't need to go there. I mean, you don't need to pursue that path because there is this deliverance. There is this salvation. There is this escape, and it's the very person of Christ. He's the very one who enables us to escape, and we say, well, can we really trust this one? And that's what this book is all about. I'm still introducing. But that's what this letter is all about. We saw it uh, a couple of weeks ago as we introduced the first few verses that God spoke long ago to our fathers in the, by the prophets. That is, they received this word from God, the prophets, and they spoke it to people. But then he goes, in these last days, that is today, in these last days, those last days having begun with the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, but these last, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, a whole qualitative difference than prophet, because not only is he, he isn't simply one who's heard it, he, he's one who is it, 
And he goes on to say who he is. He's the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him, so listen to him. He's the radiance. I'm sorry, he's the creator of all that is. So he's made it too. He's the radiance of the glory of God. If you see him, you see God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's, he's God in the flesh. He upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. He's the one who rules and reigns. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, and after making purifications for sins, we go, yes, that's it. See, that's it right there. That's how we escape by him. That's the deliverance that he, Jesus, brings. He makes purifications for sins. And when he does that, then the case against us is gone. And when we trust in that, we enter into this covenant with God. And we receive it. Then there's no fear of judgment because there's no wrath. It's taken. It's satisfied. It's done. And he breaks the power of this present evil age because this is not the age that we look to. We look to the age to come. For the age to come has come in Jesus. He's the very age to come in his rule and reign. And he's broken the snare of the devil because what Satan has over us is our sin and the judgment of God. And now that's taken and that's broken and we're beyond it as we trust. We no longer need to fear death because the sting of death is judgment and the power of judgment is sin and all that's dealt with by Jesus, you see. So the author of Hebrews, on the one hand, is extremely urgent saying, oh, you're going to... You're going to perish. You're going to be eternally destroyed if you continue on this particular way. So don't take this escape. Take this salvation. Take this deliverance. Take this Jesus. He is the very one. Because he, in fact, is God in the flesh. And so in the middle of this verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says, it, that is, this message was declared at first by the Lord, that is, Jesus declared it. This very Son of God declared it. This very trustworthy one declared it. He came and said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He came to say that I am the resurrection and the life. That is, even though you die, you will live because of me. You'll escape even death. He said, I am the bread of life. If you come to me and eat of me, then you will be filled. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You see, I just realize you can't. All you who are weary and burdened, he said, come to me, and I will give you rest. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many so that you might be delivered. And so not only did he speak the truth, but in fact, he was the truth. There was a time in Jesus' passion when he was standing before his accusers, and Pilate was beside him. And there's this great discussion about authority at that moment in time. You might remember the scene, and, 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 and Pilate was saying that he had authority over Jesus, and Jesus trumped him. Because Jesus had authority because he was the very Son of God. And Pilate had no authority other than the authority that Jesus' Father had given him, and so Jesus knew that that was just bogus. But then Pilate asked the question that is begging to be asked. He said, what is truth? 
It's very interesting in that particular passage. You can read it in John chapter 19. And in that particular passage, I was waiting as I read through that passage countless of times. I'm still waiting for Jesus to answer, for him to give a definition of truth, for him to say, oh, this is truth. But he doesn't. He, he, he kind of remains silent, and that question just sort of hangs in the air, and Pilate turns aside, and he goes back and starts talking to the people, and you begin to think, Jesus, come on, what an opportunity. This is an evangelistic moment. Take it. Still. But then you read on and see the answer about what is truth. And there you find Jesus on the cross. That's truth. That's reliable. You can bank on that. Because you see, the truth wasn't only declared at the cross. It was, there it was, in the very person of Jesus. See, the declaration of the cross is this, that God is holy, and yes, there is a day of judgment, and yes, his wrath really is real, but the other part of that truth is that God does love and is love, and as an expression of his love, he takes his wrath, he takes his judgment, and he pours it out upon Jesus, who takes the sin of sinners upon himself. That's truth. You can rely upon that. You can bank on that. You can trust in that, the author of Hebrews knows that. He says, this is the great salvation. The great salvation, the great deliverance is in Jesus, both of those wrath of. So he says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Meaning, we won't escape if we neglect it. Thus, don't neglect it, and you'll be delivered. Don't neglect it. How do you not neglect it? Trust. Trust in Christ. People often ask me, what's the most difficult thing you've found in the course of these years in talking to people about their lives and talking to people about what's the most difficult thing to convince them about? And you know, it's, it's really this. The most difficult thing to convince the people at least that I've spent my life talking to is not that they're sinners. They buy that. And it isn't even difficult to convince them that God exists. What's difficult to convince them of is that their sin, my sin and their sin, deserves this kind of punishment called hell. They simply don't think either God is that holy or that we're that bad. It was interesting, I was reading recently about a study that was trying to correlate proficiency in mathematics to how students feel about their proficiency in mathematics. And it was an international study, and the study found this. First of all, the Americans came in dead last in proficiency in mathematics, but felt the best about it. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's it. That's our problem, isn't it? We sin, but we don't feel that bad about it. Because somehow we don't really think God's that holy. We don't really think our sin's that bad. We don't really think God is that just. And we don't think our sin really deserves it. And so we're really not that worried. Whereas the prophets, the author of Hebrews, and Jesus himself knows the truth. And he's saying, don't be fooled by it. Don't neglect this great salvation. And so finally, let me move you back up into verse 1 of chapter 2. We 
we find two things in this verse. We find, number one, a commandment. Number two, a great warning. And it's interesting to me that this is the first commandment that we find, really, in, in Hebrews. The whole first chapter was just setting us up for this. The whole first chapter was just a description about who Jesus is so that we would trust him. And then this chapter begins with the word, therefore. Okay, given all that that's true, given that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he's all these things, he's the very son of God, that he's the heir of all things, that he's the creator of the world, that he's the radiance of the glory of God, that he's the exact imprint of God's nature, that he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Given all that that's true, therefore, he says this, we must pay much closer attention to our life. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't simply mean by that that we need to pay more attention than we paid before. Just bump up a little bit. Nor that we need to pay a little more attention to Jesus than we paid everything else. But pardon a little grammar here, but in Greek, this is a Greek superlative meaning that you need to pay exclusive attention to Jesus. That if you want to know about God and you want to know about your life, he's the man, he's the one, because he's the very son of God. Who else would you listen to? Why wouldn't you listen to one who's called the Son of God? Why wouldn't you listen to the one who's made purification for sin? Why wouldn't you listen to the one who's resurrected from the dead? Why wouldn't you listen to the one who now sits on the right hand of majesty on high? Why wouldn't you listen to the one who's received a name that's above every name? Why wouldn't you listen to him? Who else would you even consider? Especially not only what his words were, but what his life was, what he actually did, because that's what we need. We need what Jesus did. He made purification. For sins, he satisfied the wrath of God. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, it's that significant. It's that important. Don't listen to anybody else other than Jesus. And then he adds this warning. Lest we drift away from it. You get the image there in, in this little picture that drifting is not good. And you get the sense, and I don't know if the author of Hebrews had this particular metaphor in mind, but this is what strikes me when I think about drifting. Uh, if, I, I think, therefore, life is not a lake, but a river. It's not like a lake, but more like a river. A lake, especially a calm lake, if you stop, you just sort of stop on a nice, calm lake. There you go, it's just a lake. Your boat stops, you just sit there. It's nice. But a river is a current. A river flows. And you get the sense that if you stop, he's saying, if you stop... You're going to begin to drift. You're going to begin to go with the current. And where the current goes is not good. And so he says, unless you're paying attention to Jesus, unless you're listening to him exclusively, unless he's the one who informs your very life, then you're going to begin to drift. And when you drift, you're going to miss it. You're going to drift away. And if this image that I'm capturing is right, it isn't simply a violent reaction against Jesus. It's just sort of a reaction. That's, I don't know how you... I don't know how Joyce is going to transcribe that when she transcribes the tape, but it's just, it's just nothing. You just don't respond to him. You just go on through life. Isn't that a dangerous sounding thing? Now you may be thinking, what's the author of Hebrews saying? Is this for people who aren't believers or is this for believers? I mean, if this is for people who aren't believers, we understand that, that makes a certain measure of sense. We're telling them, that, hey, you need to get in the course of this flow and, and look to Jesus so you can escape. The old, uh, old, old, dead, 300 years ago, Puritan theologians had an expression. They, 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 they distinguished between a person being awakened and a person being converted. 
uh, we use the language of seeker here in these days, but they said some were awakening and they, they could begin to see the truth of the gospel. And so the advice to them always was, well, get in the way of the gospel. You know, if you stand in the way of the gospel, you might just get hit. So stand in the, go places where the gospel is being spoken of so that, so that the word of truth may penetrate your heart. That, people would come and say, I've had people come to me and say, I understand my sinfulness, but I don't believe in Jesus. Listen. Get in the way of the gospel. Let it keep running over you so that the truth of Christ will come. I've shared this before, but one of the great things about being a little messy is that you find things every once in a while that you didn't know were there in your office. And uh, I came upon a postcard kind of thing that was written to, uh, written to me uh, by a uh, student who had been in our church. He was an international student from China. And he had graduated from here and gone to another university to get a master's degree. And while he was here, he came to me with that exact line. He said, Bill, I'm very worried about myself. And I said, well, why? And he said, because I, I know about my sin and I believe that God is just. But I don't believe in Jesus. I just have to be honest with you. I just don't believe in Jesus. And he said, if what you're saying is true, then I'm in a heap of trouble. And I said, yes, you really are. And he said, what should I do? And I said, get in the way of the gospel. Keep reviewing the gospel. Keep reading the Bible. Keep coming to church. Get in a Bible study. He said, that's really weird for an unbeliever to be in a Bible study. It's not weird to me. It's a perfect place for someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Get in a Bible study. Start reading. Start talking to Christians about this. It's a wonderful thing. And so he did, and it's still, you know, he'd come to me every Sunday, and he said, that was really interesting. And then he went off to graduate school to start his master's degree, and, and in so doing, he found himself bumping into Christians all over the place. God is rather nice that way. And he wrote me a letter, and it simply said, I believe. Then the bottom was, P.S., I read Romans again. Get in the way of the gospel. So that makes sense to us. It makes sense to us then if somebody starts on this track and yet doesn't really believe and, and, and they stop and become apathetic, then they drift. But what about for believers? What is he saying to us? Is he saying that a genuine believer can begin on the way and then drift and miss it? Well, let me just simply say, I don't think the author of Hebrews is making any kind of point about that. He's just simply stating a truth that every person, believer or unbeliever, needs to hear. And that truth is that if you don't pay close attention to Jesus throughout the course of your life, if he isn't the focal point of your life, then you will drift. And you will miss it. He's writing to a group of churched people. He's writing to a group of people that are going to sit and listen to this letter, just like today. So these are people that are hanging around with church things, and he's just simply stating the truth. The very focus of your life is be Christ. And I think we all have a sense of what it means to drift. At least some, some of you may be here today drifting even as I speak because you're thinking, you know, Christ used to be more important to me than he seems today. I don't know why, but I just don't seem to have the same interest in the things of Christ that I once did. And, and here I, I, I sit. What does that mean? It means really, to be very honest with you, as I love you, that you're in trouble. But you're drifting, and drifting is never 
good. Sometimes you can imagine, you can see people in your own mind's eye that you knew once who seemed to be very involved in the life of the church, seemed to be very involved in the things of Christ, and then you begin not to see them as regularly at stuff. And when you talk to them, they're not so apt to talk about the things of the Lord, and you begin to wonder about, and then you say, Where, what happened to them? I don't see them anymore. The kids grow up in our church, and they seem as sixth graders to know the truth, and then as 11th graders not, and you wonder, don't drift. High school kids seem to be caught with the things of Christ, go off to college, and then we wonder, and they don't seem to be as interested in the things of the Lord, and we begin to, don't drift. College students come, they seem to get you on fire for Christ in church or campus ministry stuff, and then they go off and wonder, because they're here, and they're really still walking with the Lord. Sometimes there are things that come in our way, it might be circumstances, tragedies might come, and we may begin to think, that following Christ really isn't all that helpful. There's these other voices that come into our minds and we get distracted and no longer have our attention upon him. We become discouraged and begin to drift. It may be that, that this life comes to begin to capture us increasingly. The worries of this world, who said that? The deceitfulness of riches begin to come in and play. We see these things more important than Christ and we begin to listen to these other voices concerning things of life and it takes over. It might be people. So many times I've seen Christian young people begin to date unbelievers and watch them then drift. I've seen feuds take place in the life of the church and people then drift away because they're not really willing or able to deal with what's really going on. And we see the drifting then from people. I see sometimes people move from one community to the other and, and they begin to drift because they don't get plugged back into church. Don't ever let that happen to you. If you ever move from this place and you write me back and say, you can't find a church as good as Grace EPC, I'm going to write you back and say, that's not true. Trying to play. And there, there are people that come to this church and say, that, oh, they keep mourning the loss of their previous church. I appreciate that. But get in. Don't let that be a moment for drifting. Because it can be. Don't go there. Sometimes it's just laziness. Sometimes it's just sin. And sometimes, you know, we don't really want to go to Jesus because we know what he's going to say. I was reading an article. Actually, I wasn't reading an article. I was reading the bio on the author of the article, just something that she had written about herself. It's an article in Christianity Today called Sex in the Body of Christ. I haven't read the, the article yet, so... If you read it and don't like it, don't blame me. But she's writing about, about her life. She had been, given the title, sexually active. Uh, and I don't know if she's married now, but sexually active before she became a Christian. And after she became a Christian, she found that she continued to be sexually active. And here's what she wrote about that. She said, I knew dimly that Christianity doesn't look kindly on premarital sex. But I couldn't have told you much about where Christian teaching about sex came from. It would not have been too difficult, of course, to get more clarity on the sex issue. But I didn't do that for one principal reason. I didn't really want to get more clarity on Christian sexual ethics because I wanted, should the opportunity arise, the option of having sex. And you see, sometimes we take our eyes off Jesus because we know what he's going to say about the very thing. But isn't that foolish? Really? Not that she would agree with me. But isn't that foolish? To take our eyes off the very one who 
is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, the one who's made us, the one who's the heir of all things, the one who's sitting and leaning and leaning on high. Wouldn't it be foolish for us not to listen to him about everything? Don't you? There was a day in the life of Jesus. He had been talking to a group of people after a great miracle. <laughs> the great miracle was that he fed thousands of people with just a little bit of bread and a couple of fish. And at the end of that, he began to tell them that he was the bread of life, implying that he was the exclusive deliverer. He was the exclusive way of salvation. He was the exclusive way of escape from the judgment, the wrath of God. In fact, so exclusive was he, and so tuned into him would you need to be, that he used very, very dramatic, figurative language. And he says, following me, following me means that you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you need to be that in tune with me, he said. And the scripture says that some of his disciples, not the twelve, but some of his disciples left. It's just too hard. And Jesus turned to the twelve and basically said, what, what about you guys? What do you think about this? They just kind of shook their head. That, that's really hard. What about you guys? Peter turns and says, you have the words of eternal life. How, how could we leave you? And that's the very point. Don't neglect this great salvation because Jesus is eternal life. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, I pray for all of us, for me, for all of us, that we wouldn't be drifters that we'd understand what's at stake, that we'd understand all of these very dramatically difficult things, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, ensnared by the devil, all of that. But yet we understand, too, the truth of Christ. And so I pray for me and for all of us that we would obey this, that we would pay exclusive attention to Jesus on these things that we would trust in him and him alone. And therefore, Father, that we wouldn't drift. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.